I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figilele Nwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN calls for release of hundreds of people abducted in South Sudan, and Mozambique remembers late former President Samora Mashal. In economics news, Nigeria's NNPC extends oil swap contracts by six months. And in sports news, Athletics South Africa welcomes decision to, to delay the IFF gender rule. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has carried out a major ministerial reshuffle following the voluntary departure of Foreign Minister Louise Mashikiwabu. Mashikiwabu was last week chosen to head the World Organization of French-speaking nations. She's been replaced by seasoned politician Richard Sezibera, Defence Minister James Kabarebe, who had served in the position since 2010, is now the Presidential Advisor on Security. He's one of seven officials close to Kagame charged in France over a missile attack on a plane which killed then-President Jovenel Habiarimana and is deemed to have sparked Rwanda's 1994 genocide, which left 800,000 people dead. A new United Nations report alleges alleged South Sudan's armed opposition abducted women and girls as young as 12 and lined them up for commanders to choose wives. Those not selected were left to be raped repeatedly by other fighters. The report is based on victim and witness accounts. It focuses on the western Equatoria region. Between April and August, saying 900 people were abducted and some 24,000 forced to flee their homes as fighting surged after months of relative calm. The reports Further, the report further says opposition forces attacked at least 28 villages and a refugee camp and abducted young men and boys who were forced to be fighters or porters. Flash flooding in Tunisia has killed at least five people, while a further two are unaccounted for. The Interior Ministry says two died in the Kef region in the northwest and another in Grombalia in the north. On Wednesday, a six-year-old child drowned in Sidi Bozit in central Tunisia, and a 40-year-old man was swept away by a seasonal river in the neighboring province of Kasserine. One person has been missing since Wednesday in Kasserine and another in Zogawan in northeastern Tunisia. Water levels have risen in several cities, including the capital Tunis and its outskirts, where most schools were closed on Thursday. The Nelson Mandela and Ahmed Katrada Foundations in South Africa are commemorating the life and times of the late Mozambican president, Samora Michel. It's the 32nd anniversary of the death of Michel. He died on the 19th of October 1986 under mysterious circumstances when his plane crashed into the Limbombo Mountains in South Africa after allegedly following a false beacon. Michel's wife, Grasa, was the keynote speaker at... Widow, rather, Grasa was the keynote speaker at the launch of, of a book on the life of Samora Michel by Mozambican photojournalist Kok Nam last night. Oliver Tambo and uh, Samora explaining exactly why Mozambique is being attacked the way it is being attacked. 
I wish it is in this book. Part of what he said at that time is that we are not attacked because Mozambique has sophisticated weapons. He said, you know, our sophisticated weapon is that we are anti-racist society. He said, but you know, take the time it will take. South Africa will be free. Be a society of all races. South Africans and Mozambicans, we are one. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump says he now believes that Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi is dead. Trump says intelligence from every side suggested Khashoggi was no longer alive. The BBC's Chris Butler reports. Up to now, the president has been very careful in his criticism of the country. At one stage, he even suggested that rogue killers might have been responsible for the writer's death. However, Mr. Trump is now threatening severe consequences if evidence emerges showing that the Saudi government were involved. So far, the White House has avoided talking about any specific threat against the Saudi government, and the president appears to have ruled out the possibility of sanctions because it could jeopardise lucrative arms sales. But some response now seems inevitable. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The UN Human Rights Office says South Sudan must bring to justice the military forces responsible for abducting more than 900 men, women and children from the east of the country. In a report, the agency says hundreds of people are still missing from Bugdwe and Tambura states, both of which are in western Equatoria region. OCHR's Julie de Rivero says the first priority is to secure the victims' release after the abduction by forces loyal to former Vice President Rick Macha and then ensure perpetrators are brought to justice. This report focuses on abuses and violations that took place in Western Equatoria and South Sudan between April and August this year. One of our findings is that about 900 people were abducted during that period and about 24,000 were forced to flee their homes due to the violence. Yes, and it's hard to know where to start. Girls raped. They were paraded in front of troops and chosen by them and some of them were as young as 12 and that's chosen to be their wives. So maybe... Maybe you could give me some more detail on who is actually responsible for targeting these people. Yeah, In this report, we really found that a majority of the abuses that we documented were committed by rebel forces, the Sudan People's Liberation Army in opposition under Riek Mashar. So almost 900 abductions were attributed to them of both um, women, girls, men and boys. And I've seen pictures of uh, villages that have been looted and burned. Why? Why would, why would they attack these uh, civilians in the first place? Is it purely yeah. for looting purposes? Um, these, are, these are attacks on civilian populations. Uh, we documented about 28. Yes, there's looting, there's rape, there's sexual violence, but also, as I mentioned, abduction. So we've documented the case of 41 boys that were forcibly recruited by the SPLA in opposition, and women are also often abducted. In this case, 505 women cases were documented and 63 girls, and often it's for sexual slavery. 
And do we know where they are? This is in western Equatorial province in South Sudan. Where might That's they right. be now? We think they're still in that area, and the main call of this report is for the immediate release of the people that have been abducted. A new peace has been signed for South Sudan, and in this new context, we think that there's no excuse for keeping civilians and continuing such attacks on civilian population. How exactly is that accountability going to happen, given that South Sudan saw independence in 2011 and has been in conflict pretty much ever since? Yeah, I mean, this report really pinpoints on the responsibility of three rebel commanders in Western Equatoria and identifies the three of them. So we have been in touch with Rick Masha to highlight the abuses, to expose these abuses and to ask him to take action against these commanders so that these people are released. And we're calling on the South Sudanese authorities to ensure accountability. When you say you've been in contact with Rick Mashar, what did he say? Did he say, I'm not aware of this, I, I'm going to do something about it right away? What, what was his response? Um, I can't give you the exact response, but I think um, what's important is that the facts have been put to him to take action and individuals have been identified who bear specific responsibility and also all the figures have been given to him and the details on where these abductions have taken place. So And the identities of those allegedly responsible. Exactly. So he has, it is in his power to, to take action against these commanders. So we'll see, won't we? Tell me where we are with conflict in South Sudan at the moment. Is there still fighting in Western Equatoria and elsewhere? Well, there is still um, movement of uh, rebel forces and the military, so we are still concerned for the fate of civilians. There have been some very recent displacements in the area. So while there has been a lull in fighting in other parts of South Sudan, we're still concerned about this part, about Western Equatoria and, and the fate of civilians there. Finally, what can we do to help the people of South Sudan? There are recommendations in this uh, UNMISS report, the UN mission in uh, South Sudan report, calling to implement a program for youth job opportunities, for example, in the country. Yes, I mean, I think the first effort has to be on accountability. That is, you know, to hold leaders who are responsible for such crimes to account, because otherwise the cycle of violence will never end in South Sudan. And this is a repeated call from the UN Human Rights Office. But equally, the support that can be given to survivors of such violence to help them recover and strengthen their resilience and to help them by providing economic alternatives but also the medical and other types of need that they face because of the displacement, because of the violations that they've suffered and the conditions that they find themselves in today. And what sort of judicial recourse is there within South Sudan for this kind of abuse? Well, you know, there's been a call for the establishment of a hybrid court for crimes, war crimes and crimes against humanity in South Sudan, but unfortunately there hasn't been any movement. We have seen some military trials that took place in relation to violations that were committed in July in Juba in 2016 where several foreign aid workers were raped. But it's the only thing that we've really seen of significance, and I think South Sudan has a long way to go to set up a system that will actually bring these people to account. But we must keep on working towards that and doing everything in our power to convince you know, our partners that justice is a priority in this country. 
That's uh, OHCHR's Julie DeVero speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Several rights groups have called on Turkey to urgently ask Secretary General Antonio Guterres to establish an independent United Nations investigation into possible extrajudicial execution of prominent Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The Committee to Protect Journalists, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International and Reporters Without Borders all call for an international probe to determine the circumstances surrounding Saudi Arabia's role in the enforced disappearance and possible killing of Khashoggi. Sean Bryce Priest reports. With investigations now led by Turkey and Saudi Arabia and the United States President Donald Trump calling for the presumption of innocence for the kingdom, concerns from rights groups that current probes might produce a whitewash. Shireen Tadros of Amnesty International. Our best shot at a credible investigation, at a transparent investigation, at an investigation that won't be politicized, is for the UN to conduct it, is for Turkey to make this request. There really is no other way. This incident didn't happen in a vacuum. Jamal Khashoggi is not um, one case that is an anomaly. It happened within a context of an increased crackdown on dissent since June 2017 when, Crown, when the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um, took, took his position. And, it, and it's part of a pattern of increased, an increased crackdown on anyone who dares to question the narrative of what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Khashoggi, a fierce critic of the Saudi royal political elite, entered their consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd and has not been seen or heard from since. Saudi Arabia has denied involvement in his disappearance, claiming he left the consulate on his own, but has failed to produce any evidence supporting this claim. Robert Mahoney is the Deputy Executive Director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. This sends an incredibly chilling signal to journalists around the world that their lives don't matter and that uh, states can have you murdered with impunity. And that's why we are here this morning to make sure that there is no impunity in this case. We believe that the only way to ensure that there is no whitewash um, in the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi is that the uh, United Nations take on an independent, transparent, and international investigation. We believe that Turkey should uh, contact the UN Secretary General and instigate such an investigation. This call was endorsed by Lou Charbonneau of Human Rights Watch. If, in fact, it's true that... uh, the most senior members of the Saudi government were behind the uh, execution, dismemberment of Mr. Khashoggi, then we don't want the culprits investigating themselves. This is not how you run criminal investigations. So throwing it back at them is opening the door to a whitewash. That's why we're saying let's bring it to the U.N. We asked the Secretary General spokesperson if he'd be open to establishing such an investigation. Listen to Stefan Duzrik and the ensuing exchange. The Secretary General has repeatedly called uh, for the truth to come out in this situation, that he remains very concerned about the fate of Mr. Kosoji. We understand there are a number of investigations, uh, investigation led by, by Turkey, underway. So that's the first focus. 
the call from Amnesty, from uh, Human Rights Watch was made to the government of Turkey, so I can't answer for them. As a matter of principle, uh, the Secretary General can initiate uh, uh, an investigation if all the parties involved uh, request it, uh, or if there's a legislative mandate from a UN body. You are correct that there have been calls for a credible investigation, but given the two countries involved here and their record of treatment of journalists, it's Turkey, which is listed by CPJ as one of the worst abusers of journalists in the world, and Saudi Arabia, and I think that speaks for itself. Does the Secretary General have confidence that these two governments can lead a credible and independent investigation that will, in, at the end, deliver the Look, facts? Be before we answer that question, I think we need to let the, the initial investigation play out. In a new development, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin announced he too was pulling out of a high-profile business forum in Saudi Arabia with indications the U.S. administration will give Riyadh more time to establish the facts around Khashoggi's disappearance after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's meetings with the King and Crown Prince earlier this week. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Access to Spectrum can lead to lower data prices and other mobile service costs. This is according to representatives of the four major mobile network providers who appeared before the Competition Commission's Data Services Market Inquiry in Pretoria. The Commission established the inquiry to better understand the general state of competition in the data services sector. It believes that there are features in the sector that may prevent, distort or restrict competition. Naledingom reports. The inquiry is probing the causes of higher data prices and the impact on lower-income customers, rural customers, small businesses and the unemployed. Vodacom CEO Shamil Jusab says the lack of access to spectrum and regulatory uncertainty still pose a big challenge to the industry. Firstly, uh, high demand spectrum, um, as, 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 as we term it, should be assigned and be usable as a matter of priority. It's extremely important that we get access to the spectrums, uh, not just for us, but for all the telcos so that we can, we can drive um, right down the cost. MTN CEO Godfrey Mozwa refuted claims that high data prices drive up the cost of living for South Africans. He says data by Statistics South Africa shows that South Africans spend more on alcohol and cigarettes than they do on communication. He says MTN reduced rates by 25% in the first half of the year. People do not spend most of their money on data or on communication, especially the poor or even the rich, SA, that's SA. <coughs> the money that is spent on alcohol and tobacco is like twice that is spent on communication. <coughs> and, this, and this is not me making it up, it's that's SA. Mozo says the free access to Twitter offered to customers in the past four years demonstrates MTN support for lower internet and communication service costs. I think uh, you saw again that for four years, for four years, we basically provided free internet access to Twitter. There were no caps until recently introduced the 500 megs uh, cap, and we finally have to retire it. And that has actually done a lot in building the internet in the country. MTN CEO Sipo Maseko says Telcom has reduced its prices significantly. However, Vodacom and MTN still monopolize the market. Ourselves and MCLC have not been able to build significant market share despite being aggressive price competitors. And in fact, actually, the duopoly of Vodacom and MTN is able to sustain high prices even without having to lose market share. 
thus making the South African businesses very, very profitable. That was Sipo Masego, CEO of Telcom, the partly state-owned South African telecommunications company, ending that report by Naledi Ngobo in Pretoria. Going back in time to today in 2005, a defiant Saddam Hussein pleaded innocent to charges of premeditated murder and torture as his trial opened under heavy security in the former headquarters of his Ba'ath party in Baghdad. Today in History, 2005. The Mozambican government has expressed satisfaction with the cooperation from the countries involved in the investigation to establish the circumstances surrounding the plane crash that killed the then-president Samora Machel in 1986. The governor of Maputo province, Raimundo Maitro Diomba, revealed this during the commemoration of the tragic crash that killed Machel and 33 others in Mbuzini, bordering South Africa and Mozambique. Eric Lubisi has filed this report. Family members of the plane crash victims and government officials from Mozambique and Pumalanga, remembering those who perished at Samora Marshall Museum in Mbuzini. President Marshall and territory of his compatriots died when the plane at Tupolev 13483 they were traveling in crashed in the mountains of Mbuzini near Komati Port in 1986. They were returning home following a meeting in Lusaka, Zambia, when the crash happened. During the commemoration, the families laid rats at the site. Governor of Maputo province, Raimundo Michael Diomba, expressed satisfaction with the ongoing investigation. The investigation is being carried out by South Africa, Mozambique and Russia. The investigation is going on. It's going on. When they finish, I think everybody will know what happened and who killed Samora Mashal, who planned to kill Samora Mashal. For the time being, we are just waiting for the results of the investigation which is going on within two countries, Mozambique and South Africa. MEC for Sports, Arts and Culture in Pumalanga Tandishongwe shared the same sentiments. We want to, to have closure on this matter, at least if you know that so-and-so participated, so-and-so planned the crash, then I think uh, we will get closure and the people of Mozambique will get closure because as of now they've got uh, many questions that are not answered. Sam Masango, a member of the ANC Youth League, encouraged young Mozambicans to seek education in order to deal with the socio-economic challenges facing the country. He says both countries face similar challenges. You will remember that poverty and inequality, same struggle of Mozambique and is the same as South African that we have experienced. Young people in particular need to take up the spear because there is a, no longer a question of a will. It's a must that young people must stand up and then live their life and epitomes of Okomret uh, Samora Machel. Meanwhile, Efrelimo Youth League representative Sibusiso Silvestra says they are following on the footsteps of Samora Machel as young people from Mozambique to bring change. A lack of employment, many young, many people, they don't work and they are looking for the employment, but we don't have their, their work, they don't work and the, the, governor, the government of Mozambique 
is creating some infrastructure in order to give more more jobs, more works to the young people. The Samora Machel Museum features photographic exhibition based on the socio-economic and political history of Machel. I'm Eric Lubesi in Buzin, near the Mozambique, Swaziland borders. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Data Services Market Inquiry public hearing held in South Africa's capital Pretoria ends today. Hosted by the country's Competition Commission, the inquiry seeks to evaluate features in the market creating high data prices. This as there are numerous complaints of high data prices restricting the advancement of lower-income communities. The inquiry has heard that South Africans pay seven times more for data than consumers in other African countries. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Executive Director of a Community Advocacy Organization, Amandla.mobi, Koketso Mweti. Koketso, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. It's a pleasure being here. Now, how would you say the hearings have been the past two days? Just briefly um, give us an idea of how the deliberations went. Yeah, um, so on the first day, it was mainly organizations. Second day was the mobile network providers themselves. I think I was dismayed by some of the responses, the arguments that that they made. Um, so one of the service providers, MPN in particular, was pointing out that people should be spending more on communication um, rather than cigarettes and alcohol, which is really completely beside the point, you know. And I felt like, um, yeah, it was it was essentially a lot of what was raised was an attempt to derail from the fundamental issue that low-income consumers are not enjoying the benefits of competition and that low-income consumers are paying what we call a poverty premium on the cost of data. Now, with the hashtag data must fall submission, what's your stance on that? Yeah, I think our position is very clear. We want a limit in the spread of pricing between small bundles and big bundles because we know low-income users are completely dependent on smaller bundles, right? We want to limit in the spread of pricing between prepaid and contract bundles because contract consumers do enjoy much more value for money in terms of the cost at lower cost because we know who cannot, who does not qualify for contracts. These are low-income consumers. And we also want the abolition of out-of-bundle pricing 
which is completely, completely ridiculous and unfair. Um, We also want transparency from our mobile network operators, right? We want to see at every price point of the data value chain, right? This kind of data must be published and released so that the regulators and other organizations interested in the matter can see what people are paying in real terms. Transparency is key. But finally, we are also calling for the for indices of affordability that focus on those living on and below South Africans median national um, average wage, right? Because the sachet pricing, which is the pricing that is on buying smaller bundles at a time, um, does mean we need to be looking at how affordable are these in relation to the income that people are earning. What outcome is likely to come out of these hearings? I cannot anticipate them. I mean, I am I am very grateful that the Competition Commission has taken a stance, but also that they are focusing primarily on the impact on low-income consumers. I think in the whole data must fall kind of conversation, it often does get lost that, yes, data is much more expensive, but we can't ignore that a large segment of our population, which is poor, and even this poverty is, is evidence that suggests it's underestimated, is still paying so much more than high-end consumers. Let's say, Anna, it it goes on the consumer's way in terms of um, data prices, reduction, and, you know, when we all get excited, is this this an outcome that would be positive more for the consumers and also balanced out for the companies? I do. I do completely, completely think so. Nothing that we are, nothing that we have recommended is impossible to do. Is going to cost them anymore. Is going to. It does not take more money to manufacture data when it's in bundle than it does when it's out of bundle. You know. So to have a price difference between those two just doesn't make any sense. So yeah, nothing that is being asked for is impossible to do. And very quickly, just in wrapping up, Goketo, how confident are you that the Commission will heed um, your recommendations as this case has been dealt with for a number of years now? Um, I cannot say, you know, I cannot say how the regulatory body will go. I do not want to subvert a democratic process. Um, but, yeah, as, as I mentioned, you know, I do, I do note that I am glad that the Competition Commission has really been taking this seriously. And, yeah, we will see what the outcome. Because we also know that it's not just about the outcome from the regulator side, right, that these corporates, these uh, mobile network operators do strike back when things aren't found in their favor. And the Communications Authority, ICASA, and what happened with their regulations is very instructive for us that these mobile network operators do move right back when they prophesy threat. Koketo, we hope for the best because we'll definitely all benefit. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. That's Executive Director of the Community Advocacy Organization, Amanda.mobi. Koketo Mwedi, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Rwandan President Paul Kagame carries out a major ministerial reshuffle following the voluntary departure of Foreign Minister Louise Mashikiwabu. A United Nations report alleges South Sudan's armed opposition abducted women and girls and lined them up for commanders to choose wives. And Malaysia's opposition leader Ahmad Zahid Hamadi has been hit with 45 charges in a 26 million US dollar corruption case. Those are the stories making headlines. Going back in time to today in 1986, President Samora Machal of Mozambique dies in a plane crash. Machal and 33 other passengers died when their plane crashed into the Libombo Mountains in South Africa after allegedly following a false beacon. He was returning from an African leader summit in Zambia. Let's listen to this clip of President Machal. Aluta continua! Porque foram colonizados pelos ingleses, os ingleses são civilizados, se constituem um grande império. There are some who feel a certain pride because they were colonized by the English. The English are civilized and had built a great empire. <laughs> e outros, porque foram colonizados pelos franceses e pensam que intelectualmente são mais desenvolvidos, mais civilizados, mais evoluídos, porque foram colonizados pelos franceses. There are others who think because they were colonized by the French, they are more intellectually developed, more civilized, more evolved, because they were colonized by the French. I was colonized by the Portuguese. The most backward country in Europe. But still colonialist. Colonialismo é um crime contra a humanidade. Colonialism is a crime against humanity. Não há colonialismo humano. There is no humane colonialism. Não há colonialismo democrático. There is no democratic colonialism. Não há colonialismo não explorador. There is no non-exploitive colonialism. A luta continua. A luta continua. That's President Samora Machal of Mozambique, who died in a plane crash on this day in 1986. That sound courtesy of YouTube. A few years ago, South Africa instituted School Health Week, which runs from the 15th to the 19th of October, to highlight various health issues at local schools. The week is also an opportunity to our basic health screening to learners at schools in areas identified as priority health districts. This year, the health initiative has been embraced by several schools throughout the country. One of them, Lucito School for the Differently Abled in Johannesburg, has established a holistic health program to promote mental, physical and emotional learner well-being. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by the school's principal, Diolinda Molina. Diolinda, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu, and good morning to the listeners. Now, firstly, what are some of the health challenges faced by South African schools that you can highlight? Uh, Well, I can say that uh, you see that 
the learners now, uh, they don't have, the families don't have the proper time to maybe have a proper meal, uh, adequate and balanced, and that is the main problem that we just give our children fast food, and that is not beneficial for the health as well as for the concentration and affect negatively due to lack of mobility, exercise, and all the willingness to participate in physical activities. Briefly tell us about the purpose of School Health Week and what happens during the week. It's just to create awareness and to uh, dedicate some time and some thought to what can we feed our children to create more um, health and more beneficial for them to create, to express themselves and to do this with more practical benefit in the classrooms at the end. But you know, Lulu, that our school is a school for um, special needs learners. And in our school, we offer a meal a day, and we try to include all the balance and a protein and carbs and vegetables. This is how we focus in our school diet. Let's talk about your school in particular. You've just mentioned in terms of the diets that you you have for the children in the school. Um, And these are children who are differently abled. Tell us more about the needs addressed by the school. Well, you know that our school... uh the school is funded with the proceeds from the annual Lusito Land Festival. And we are in the south of Johannesburg, and we offer our learners um, different therapies that uh, will benefit them to grow and to have um, more benefits from our therapies. And I understand there are also a number of health practices followed by the schools, such as not giving kids any sugary drinks and ensuring that tuck shops um, sell healthy food. And we've seen in a number of schools uh, around the country where this also is being um, adopted, this practice, health practice is being adopted, where you're advised as parents to, um, you know, rather give uh, whether um, cut up vegetables, fresh vegetables or fruit in, in their lunch boxes and, and so on. Um, you know, have you seen, these are simple things to do, yes. um, have you seen significant changes or improvements within the school with these recommendations? Yes. You see that uh, we offer a meal daily and we encourage also the parents to cut with the sugar in the children's diet, but it's something that we don't know what happened at home. But we encourage them to do the same like we do at school. But in our school, it's more controllable because we offer the meals and we just don't have sugar in the tea or in, at lunchtime. They will have also a glass of water. No juices, no sugary, nothing like that. And you know that also our learners, because the physical um, constrictions, they will need a little bit more of time to eat. That's why we don't uh, hurry them to eat, and we also 
try to help them to eat the ones that cannot feed themselves, and we allow them to have enough time to eat slowly and to enjoy their food. And we also, um, you see that we encourage the parents to do that, but at home it's difficult because, you see, we all in a hurry and we don't know sometimes what's happening at home, but we try and we trust our parents. Now, in terms of, you mentioned the fact that children must be given enough time to eat their food and they must eat slowly and enjoy their food. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a scenario. In school, break time, 15 minutes. Children will normally walk out of a classroom and want to play first before they eat. How do we control that as, as you know, teachers in school and, and parents? Well, you see, the parents need to pay attention to what they put in their lunch boxes. And that five minutes or ten minutes that will remember that they have to eat, it will be something nutritious and something that will keep them running and give them enough energy for the rest of the morning at school. Dear Linda, thank you so much for joining us and we'll leave it there for now. Thank you, Lulu. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's uh, Dear Linda Molina, principal of Lucito School for the Differently Abled in Johannesburg, joining us on the line. Today, 1977, the supersonic Concorde made its first landing in New York City. A typical London to New York crossing would take a little less than three and a half hours as opposed to about eight hours for a subsonic flight. And the Concorde had a takeoff speed of 250 miles per hour and a cruising speed of 1,350 miles per hour, more than twice the speed of sound. Today in History, 1977. The Western Sahara is referred to as Africa's last remaining colony. How did it get there? Are there efforts to ensure the country is liberated? Well, here's our reporter, Sarah Kimani, with the historical perspective. Welcome to southwestern Algeria. We're in Tinduf, home to at least 173,000 of refugees from Western Sahara. The area hosts five camps which have for the last 43 years been refuge for the Saharawi people. So how did we get here? In 1975, Spain, Western Sahara's former colonial power, relinquished the territory to Morocco and Mauritania. A battle between the Polisario Front, Morocco and Mauritania ensued. Mauritania forces then withdrew in 1979, leaving behind the Moroccans. 1975, just when the International Court of Justice said that uh, the Sahrawi people have the rights of determination, Morocco moved in with its weapon and army and denied us our rights of determination, pushed the United Nations out and blocked the UN plan from being implemented in Western Sahara. In 1991, the United Nations brokered a ceasefire which was to lead to a referendum to vote for independence or integration in Morocco. But it did not go ahead because the Polisario Front and Morocco could not agree on who could vote. Between accepting the plan and accepting to resolve the issue peacefully and uh, going to its implementation, Morocco was delaying and we had the long 
time waiting since 1981 for this free and fair referendum to take place. Of course, Morocco does not want a referendum, otherwise they would have accepted it in 1975. At that time, the UN was going to organize a referendum. Now, the referendum has changed a little bit because the options were for the Sahrawi people to choose between independence or integration with Morocco. Even that did not resolve the issue because the Sahrawi would have voted overwhelmingly for independence. And until now, I do not personally think that Morocco will accept a referendum because they will lose it. As the stalemate persists, so do human rights abusers inside Western Sahara in areas occupied by Moroccan forces. Human rights organizations say they are violent crackdowns on protesters demanding liberty. In other cases, torture and enforced disappearance. In 1984, the Organization of African Unity, or AU, admitted Western Sahara as a member state. Morocco left the continental body in protest and remained out until July 2017. The admission of Morocco was not a unanimous decision. We were badly divided in that process. Some of us were totally against, some of us were in favor. Unfortunately for us, you know, because... Zimbabwe is one of those who was, which was totally opposed. Those in who wanted them in turned out to be in the majority. But now I think even some of those countries who supported the admission of Morocco realize that uh, their expectations are not turning out to be. Last colony, it's a contradiction and I have no doubt in my mind that the likes of O.R. Tambo and Nelson Mandela reflected on this and said no. Diplomatic efforts to end the conflict have been deadlocked since the last round of talks in 2008. Our economics update up next with Tabizolo Hoko. Good morning. The African Development Bank has approved a 50 million US dollar line of credit to Nigeria's Fidelity Bank to support small and medium-sized and women-owned enterprises in selected transformative sectors, including close to 100 SMEs in manufacturing, health and education. The facility is fully dedicated to financing micro, small and medium-sized enterprises with a minimum of 30% going to women-owned enterprises. The loan will enhance Fidelity Bank's liquidity and help meet the demand for medium-term funding to players in the target sectors contributing to improve the quality of lives, job and wealth creation and tax revenue generation. There are indications that the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, WNPC, may have extended its accrued for oil products contracts worth about six billion US dollars by another six months from the end of 2018 to 2019. According to Reuters news agency, the corporation is separately in advanced discussions with some of the swap contract holders who invest in rehabilitating its refineries. Double NPC uh, crude swap deals, which were previously referred to as offshore crude oil processing agreements and crude for products exchange arrangements, are now known as direct sale, direct uh, purchase agreements.
South Africa's finance minister, Tito Mbowene, says that the continent cannot only rely on China for development. He was speaking in Lesotho's capital, Maseru, where he addressed the Association of Accountants. Mbowene also commented on South Africa's state capture and VBS Bank saga. This was a bank that was started during the Bantustan system by the vendor Bantustan. The model was correct. This was a bank which is mutual and provided loans, even housing loans to people living in so-called traditional areas. Then the executives began to use the bank as their personal property and they looted it of two billion rands. They stole two billion rand and must go to jail. Investec Asset Management, a subsidiary of Investec, has bought in a firm that runs private colleges in South Africa, tapping into a fast-paced expansion in education businesses. Rising incomes among Africa's vast population have created a pool of customers willing to pay for better schooling for their children. That, in turn, is driving a fast-paced expansion in education businesses. Japan's consumer price inflation rose to 1% from September, from 0.9% in August, but still far away from the Bank of Japan's inflation target of 2%. In China, economic growth slowed to 6.5% in the third quarter, its weakest economic growth since the global financial crisis 10 years ago. This as the trade war with the United States has caused the Chinese stocks to sell off in a climate of rising debt and a weakening Chinese currency. Chinese industrial production came in at 5.8% in September, as car makers cut production by over 10% due to weaker sales. The US dollar trades at 10.45 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.89 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 369 Brazilian rub, at 65.62 Russian ruble, and at 73.46 Indian rupee. It's at 694 Chinese yuan, 1431 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 76 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro, gold, $1,227, platinum, $829 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $79.35 a barrel from an African perspective. A sports update up next was Figle Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. FIFA World Cup bound squad of the South African under-17 women's national football team Bandwana have secured two friendly matches against their counterparts from Mexico and Uruguay in preparation for the 2019 FIFA Under-17 Women's World Cup, which kicks off on the 13th of November in Uruguay. Bandwana will face first Mexico on the 1st of November, followed by a clash with the host nation four days later. Head coach of South Africa, Simpiwe Lulu, says the two games will play a key role in getting the team ready for competition. 
Bandona held the first training session at Max Park in Johannesburg uh, on Thursday. Head coach Simpio Lulu expressed her delight over her charges response in the session. And in local football news, South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns assistant coach Mangoba Mgriti says their preparations for the Telecom knockout first round match against Bloemfontein Celtic have been affected by the FIFA international break. The two teams will clash at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in Pretoria on Saturday. Mgriti says five of their international key players have not returned to camp. Smusiso Vilagazi is out for the remainder of the season after he was injured in the Bafana camp last week. We are fortunate to have had a little bit more time to prepare for this match, considering that there was a FIFA break. But when you had six of your of your key players in the national team, then it also leaves a little bit of doubt as to how will they come back. Already we know we've lost one in Villa. We are left with five, hopefully, because they have not arrived to us. But uh, the preparation have, has gone very well. The coach was not around was uh, doing his pro license in, in Morocco uh, and we had to, to try and help where we can. Former Proteas coach and NMB Giants coach Eric Simon says they have all of the bases covered in terms of the different skills that players bring and the only department where they are found wanting will be their lack of an off spinner. Yeah, we're pretty happy. Uh, we're, we're very happy, actually. You know, particularly up front, we got a, we got what we wanted, and um, I think we've covered all our bases. I think the only skill we don't have is an off spinner, but uh, we, you know, we got we got leggies and can take ball both ways. So otherwise, we got left arm seamers, we got we got fast bowlers, we got left-handed batsmen, we got all sorts of angles covered. You know, obviously we're in Port Elizabeth, we want to be able to dominate at home, but you have to be able to play all around the country. So. Getting a balance right is crucially important. That was our objective. And uh, we also got, I think, a good blend between experience and, and youth, which is also an crucial part of it. Simon says the reason why most of his squad is made up of local players is because of the time foreign players will spend not playing, especially in the first few games of the tournament. Well, one of the things that worried us is we, we, Jason Roy is only here from after the what's the fourth of December or something. So we were very concerned about players when they could be here, and and we love some of the quality that's available. But you know we, we can't afford to have too many away. So one has to get that right, and we t- we, t- we tend to look for players that are available for the tournament. South African player in tennis Lloyd Harris will open the South African Davis Cup campaign against Portugal today in the Euro African Cup one playoff tie being played in Lisbon at the Club Internacional de Football. In the official draw conducted on Thursday afternoon in Lisbon Cultural Center, the Centro Cultural de Belém Italian ITF tournament referee Roberto Ranieri drew the name of Portuguese number two Pedro Zouza from the head first resulting in Harris' opening procedures at noon today. Nick Scholz will then follow Harris and pay the second singles rubber against Portuguese number one, Rua Zouza. Despite the Portuguese having s- home tie advantages, Andruska says that the draw worked in favor of South Africa. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.
Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN calls for release of hundreds of people abducted in South Sudan, and Mozambique remembers late former President Samora Machel. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From ourselves, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutora Magadza and Komoto Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Awadi with a song title Samara Mashal. Em ligação constante com a vida e os interesses das massas. Ça ne se donne pas, c'est pour sa terre que sa mort à ma fait la guerre, c'est pour sa terre du Mozambique que tombe tant de frères, c'est pour sa terre en vérité qu'en révolutionnaire, il combat l'ennemi pour la victoire des masses populaires, mais la traque de l'ennemi jamais ne cessera, un avion s'écrase avec un bord un certain Samora. Sacrifício do sangue e das ruínas. Samora.